Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. All right, <clears throat> Daniel's chap- uh, Daniel chapters three and four. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we just ask that you tonight would open our minds and our hearts to uh, the truths that are found in your word, Lord. It's uh, a beautiful thing that you have preserved this, this, this story of this man, Daniel, uh, his life, who he was as a, a man, a young man in exile, and, and what he did um, for you and your kingdom, what he did as a man, Lord, what he did as a prophet. <laughs> And tonight, Lord, as we study these uh, chapters, I just pray you would help me, Lord, to speak uh, what your spirit lays on my heart to speak and help these to, uh, to hear, Lord, what you would have, uh, have to say to them. And we pray and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so a quick recap and then we'll jump into chapter three and four. Chapters one and two were the exile of the explanation of the exile of um, a lot of captives from Jerusalem who were taken by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And they are then taken. And then as we get into chapter two, there's a situation where uh, the main character, of course, Daniel, uh, has to make some decisions about how he's going to live um, and he both decides that he's going to not eat the king's fare, those delicacies that are offered to him. So he decides that he's going to keep pure. And then he also has the opportunity in chapter two to interpret the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And of course, that, that dream, we went into some detail on that last time. It's a, it's a dream about this, uh, this basically statue of these that has a, a gold head, silver chest and arms, bronze middle, um, iron legs, and then feet that are made of uh, iron and clay. And these are representations of kingdoms on the earth. Um, I won't get into that a lot because it takes a long time to, <laughs> to get uh, through those details, but we will be coming back to that in future chapters. If you, so if, you're not, if you've not heard about that, or if, you're, if that's new information, just go back and check out the other study. Um, either on the podcast or on the website. The jumping off point for tonight into Daniel 3 is just the fact that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream about the, this, the, this, this, what do I, what do I call it? This statue, basically. And the head of gold uh, represented in the dream uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself and the kingdom of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was just, completely floored by the fact that Daniel knew both the dream, because God revealed the dream to him, as well as the interpretation. And let's just begin by looking at the end of Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> when, when Daniel is, uh, is telling Nebuchadnezzar, and, and Nebuchadnezzar hears this interpretation, uh, and this is in chapter 2, verse 46, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. So that he wants to honor Daniel for what 
uh, he did in the interpretation. And the king answered Daniel and said in verse 47, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. And then he goes on to promote Daniel to a high position within the kingdom. In fact, over the whole province of Babylon, and actually he was then the chief administrator over all the wise men, the same wise men who couldn't do the job that they said they could do in interpreting the dream and and, and understanding the dream itself. And then Daniel, last verse of chapter two, then petitions the king to set these other three men, um, these other Jews that were also exiles, in uh, to petitions them to be basically um, sub-rulers within the kingdom. And those are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those, of course, will be very main characters that we will study tonight. So, all that to say, that's a rather long-winded introduction, sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to breathe for a second. And begin. All that to say, Nebuchadnezzar obviously recognized within Daniel that he had a, a gifting. He recognized that he had been given knowledge of the dream. He had been uh, given knowledge about the interpretation, and he was very impressed. And so now imagine if you were Nebuchadnezzar and you experienced something like this, a very humbling experience where somebody else knew something about you that was so intimate and so detailed that it caused you a king, you know, a a, a ruthless king, to fall prostrate on your face. The next day, what do you think you would do? Do you think you would reform your ways, perhaps? Do you think that you would be, there would be a character change? And I want to point this out because human beings deal with this kind of stuff all the time. They have some kind of realization about life and it's very profound. And they're like, you know what? I think I'm going to change my ways. I mean, people have these experiences. But the issue is, do they? Let's find out what Nebuchadnezzar does. So he has this dream about this giant statue, the head of gold. Now we begin chapter three. And we're not exactly sure how much later this is, but we're not told it's a great amount of time. So chapter three, verse one. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. So that's 90 feet tall, nine feet across, pretty, pretty big. Um, And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So right off the bat, did he get the message? (laughs) Clearly not, right? And, and, and people do this all the time, that you think they're on the edge of understanding something, and you're like, you know, I really think, I really think they got it, you know? And then the next day, you're like, oh, they didn't get it at all. So somewhere in Nebuchadnezzar's brain, he went from, wow, this is amazing that I had this dream about this statue. Um, looks like a, an Oscar, right? This is, this is terrible. This is about as good as I do. So I'm actually okay with that. And so he's like, wow, this has to do with the, the Babylonian Empire and then the Medo-Persians and then, and then uh, uh, Greece and Alexander the Great and then, and then, and then, and then uh, the kingdom of the Roman Empire and then later a future kingdom of, of, of the Roman Empire kind of come back to life mixed with clay. And he's like, wow, this is so incredible that I'll just take the gold part and make an entire one for people to worship you know, in my land. 
And so he obviously just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it at all. He just takes the opportunity to make something greater and more grand, and this time completely of gold, to exalt what? The God that he just was learning about? No, who does he exalt? He exalts, he exalts himself. Exalts himself. And guys, we've learned a lot in the Bible about self-exaltation. Does this ever end up really for the good of man? No, self-exaltation does the exact opposite. In fact, Jesus' teaching on this and in various portions of the New, Text, New Testament talks about the exact opposite being the formula really for success as far as relationship with God, right? And that is you are to deny yourself. And in the book of James, it tells us that if you humble yourself, who will exalt you? The Lord, which is so cool. I mean, sometimes I think we look at exaltation and we're like, oh, you know, there should be like this kind of constant false humility and, and you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be raised up to anything. You should just always be in the dirt, you know, just on your face. And no, it says quite the opposite. It says, let the Lord exalt you in due time. He will bring up and to pass the things that he wants to do within your life. Our job is to deny ourselves, to humble ourselves. His job is then to exalt. Nebuchadnezzar does the exact opposite. He sees this as an opportunity. It flickers around in his head and all of a sudden he's building a giant statue about himself. Now, just a, just a quick show of hands. Who here has built a giant statue of themselves? Just want to make sure to get that out of the way in case. Anybody have a giant statue of themselves? <laughs> Maybe just in your backyard. Maybe a small statue of yourself. Anybody? Okay, well, that's good. Okay, the, whew. okay, so let's move on. So he sets up this giant statue in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar, verse two, sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image. This is very important. To the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is something important in God's law that there would be no graven image, right? So the fact that this is an image of a person and then there's this, this, this dedication should, should for at least for the Christian mind, set off like warning bells. This is, not, this is not good. So, verse three, the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Um, just a quick note here. Um, in, in, in Exodus, when, when the Lord is showing Moses about the building of the tabernacle and all the pieces of the tabernacle, you know, all the, the various furnishings and all the stuff, while it is, of course, the plan and the mind of the Lord to do so, he highlights within the text two specific people who are artisans in which he has placed like a mind to do these incredible artistic things. And he actually gives credit to these two people. Their names are Oholiab and Bezalel. Now, I bring that up because this is the Lord giving kind of some credence or some credit 
to those, those people who are part of the artistic venture. You will notice here a complete absence of any kind of mention of who actually built this image. Now, if you're building something that's 90 feet tall, nine feet wide, and that's got a stand and a plane, there is gonna be a lot of people behind that. Does Nebuchadnezzar give any credit at all to anybody that had to do with this? No, and this is what is so interesting and unique about even what the Lord did in Exodus in giving a certain amount of, of not credit, but like, like he, was, he, was not, he was willing to sh- kind of share a little bit in that, that beautiful offering of, of, of all the things that were created. Just an interesting note within the text. So anyhow, Nebuchadnezzar had this thing set up, and then, verse four, a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So this immediately becomes an extremely problematic thing. It's one thing to, to build something that exalts yourself. It's one thing to take uh, a, an image that had been shown to you and then to make it into something that it should not have been made into. But this is yet another giant <laughs> erroneous step, which is then to force people to worship the image with all kinds of music. And for these, these people, of the, the Jews who were there in exile, this idea of being forced to worship, A, an image, of course, which they were told never to do, and much less an image of a man who is the, the, the king of a foreign power, this is a, obviously a giant no-no and a giant problem. And on top of that, it comes with a giant consequence. What will they do? What will they do? The threat is quite clear. When the orchestra begins and the music is playing, and you can just kind of imagine the scene, right? There's, there's, there's probably some kind of band director in the, in the, in the side. He's like, okay, let's, all, let's, let's, let's play the, the Babylonian national anthem. You know, I don't know how, how it went. Um, probably wasn't God Save the, the, the Queen. Um, but however it went, I can kind of imagine a, kind of a certain symphonic composition. You know, and then it's going to be grand, grandiose and, and sounding really cool. And then everybody is going to be looking so that no one sees them not bow down and worship because the threat is so grave. And, and isn't it interesting that, you know, for me as a musician, that when, when music is involved in false, <laughs> false worship, or that that music is part of that, it always, it always is interesting to me because I, I know what the kind of the power of music is as a musician. You know, music is a really, it's a powerful thing. It, it has the potential to move you towards a, a certain thought, a certain emotion, all this kind of stuff. And here they were using music in a false way to try to sway the people into thinking that they were doing something grand when the exact opposite thing was happening. 
So what are these guys going to do? What are you going to do? What about the times in life where something is happening and you're told that you have to bow your knee or give homage to something that you really don't want to? And there's a threat. Now, it, it, it was very, very likely that you will not be faced at this time with the threat of being thrown into a fiery furnace. But there's a number of other threats that you could face for not bowing to the agenda of this or, or saying that you agree with that. You know when you speak. You know the people that you speak with who hold a different perspective on life, a different perspective on how things should be. You know that when those words come rolling out of your mouth, there are consequences with those words. Relational consequences, familial consequences, we all have to face them. And we all have to be prepared to a certain extent to stand. These guys had to make a decision. What were they going to do? Let's read on and see what they do. Therefore, at the time, verse 8, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. So these, some, some people in the crowd were watching. Now, if you remember, at the, at the end of the previous chapter, these guys had been given positions, right? Positions within the government. It's very possible that they were displacing other people from those positions. I think myself that this is probably some of those people who were aware that these foreigners, these, these Jewish men, had been given power and they did not like it. So they come forward and they accuse the Jews. Who is the accuser of the brethren? Satan is the accuser. Accusation. It's amazing how powerful accusation is. If someone walked up to you today and said, you did this, I know you did it. it it's very easy when you're accused of something to, it, it, you know, the first time you hear it, you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Accusation is a very powerful thing. So they come forward and this is their this is their way. And they spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And now they get to the point, verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now you may be thinking to yourself, well, where's, where's Daniel in this list? We'll come back to that in a, in a minute or five minutes or 20 minutes however long it takes me to get there. So, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 13, in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. And oh, by the way, quick textual note, um, this section within Daniel is again all written not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. Okay, so this is the official language of the Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar himself, and it says like they're not worshiping your gods. One of the gods of the Babylonians was called Nebu. This, of course, is the god that Nebuchadnezzar himself 
is named after. In fact, the word Nebuchadnezzar actually, let's see, what does it mean here? Oh, may Nebu protect the crown. So anyhow, that's what Nebuchadnezzar means. Um, oh yeah, so that was, that was one of the foreign gods, sorry. Just got mixed up there. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury, verse 13, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, it's interesting that he even asks this question, right? He was, he was there when Daniel brought the dream. He was there speaking of his own mouth about the highness of the God who revealed this. He knew that they, they stood for certain things. And yet he still asked the question, is it true that you're not going to worship my gods? And this, this gives us quite a bit of insight into who Nebuchadnezzar really is in his own mind. In his own mind, Nebuchadnezzar is, he sees himself as not just a king, but almost as a kind of God king. And he's okay that there's other gods. He's obviously okay with that. But he's not okay with other gods being more important than him. When this is violated, this is where he gets quite upset. And when he says, is it true? You can almost imagine he's, he's thinking about the fact that he's, he's brought them up, he's given them positions of power, and like he doesn't maybe want it to be true. Now, if you are ready, verse 15, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And, and, and here's where we see what the, the inside thinking of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And who, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Who's the king of kings in Nebuchadnezzar's mind? It's him. He's placed himself on top of the list of gods. For him, this thing of gods is a kind of, maybe a mythology or something that people use. But it's not a reality. It's not something that requires him to bend his knee or humble himself. Now these things are all supposed to fall underneath his power. And don't you think it's interesting how many times, just even in this chapter alone, how many times again, that they say this thing about the music. Is it not true? He's like, come on, come on guys. Is it true? Now, now, if you're ready, come on. Now, seriously guys, come on, come on. It's, it's not that big a deal, right? Now, when you hear the music, just you know, do the thing that you're supposed to do. Come on, come on, fall in line. Come on, when you hear the music, come on, fall in line. And they won't. They're not gonna fall in line out of principle. They cannot worship something that is false. What about you and me? Can we worship something that is false? 
Where's your, where's your conscience? Where's your, where's your heart? When, when, when the thing comes, will you worship the false thing? Now, we're, we're not told that these guys were being in any kind of way and kind of an annoyance. They weren't, they, weren't, they weren't trying to make a scene. They were simply making a stand. Now, they'd already made the stand before because people noticed it, but now they have to make the stand in front of the king. And now they've made the stand in front of the king, but now the king is with fury and rage. Guys, at any point along the line here, they could have said to themselves, well, you know, I mean, we are foreigners, you know. When in Rome, right? When in Babylon, do as the Romans do, right? Hey, you know, we're, over he- we're over here, look, look, we could get our positions taken away. Um, let's, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> I mean, it is a really great piece of music we're listening to. Maybe it's not that bad. Or in front of the king, oh man, he looks really upset and I know what he did over there. The world, unfortunately, often will press the point of when are you and me, when are we willing to bow our knees? Where is, where is the point at which we will say, well, you know, Jesus will understand. God will understand. You remember the story of Peter, right? Right? walked with Jesus for three years, saw incredible things. Jesus gets taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Allows himself to be. Peter not only cuts off the servant's ear trying to fight it in that way, but then he follows Jesus. And we must give him credit. He's one of the only ones that does. But then he gets into a small little campfire and there's a servant girl. She's not a king. Do you know Jesus? Aren't you a... Yeah, you're, you're, you're a Galilean. Your speech betrays you. I, I don't know the man. Three times he denies the Lord in front of people that aren't that significant. Sometimes we forget. It's not just in front of the bigwigs. But our, our testimony, our witness as, as followers of Christ, any, any person who's, who can flip you, who can flip me, may try. And we can all deny the Lord and deny Christ more easily than you think. One of the... Um, one of the teachers I was listening to in the preparation for the study put this out there for, for his congregation, and I'm going to put it out there tonight again because I think it's wonderfully convicting. If there is a time in your life or there's a situation where you yourself have denied Christ... Something where you had to bow the knee to something else. Something where you didn't speak what is true. It's a good night to confess that. It's a good night to tell the Lord of the time when you didn't stand and you should have or didn't speak when you were supposed to. 
or betrayed who you were. Hey, you're not one of those born-again Christians, are you? Those weirdos. Oh, no, no, no. I go, uh, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I've got something to do. I'm so sorry. If there is a time where you have know these two great truths, one is the denial of Christ is not the unpardonable, unpardonable sin. He is completely willing to forgive this. Sometimes it can weigh heavily upon us. It has weighed heavily on me. But he is willing to forgive us when we do. And yet he still asks us and tells us not to deny him before men. And there is, there is a strong word that Jesus told us about this, right? He who denies me before men, I will deny him before the Father. It's something we have to take seriously in our Christian walk. It's something that we have to deal with, that this issue of denying Christ is something that is going to be part of walking with him. It's going to be there. It's something you're going to have to face. And if there is something that you need to confess, deal with it tonight. So anyhow, he offers to them to hear the music to fall down, to worship. And he says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? So verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, oh, and this is one of the most amazing responses in the whole book, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Look at their response. We have no need to answer you in this matter. You ever been reading the words of Christ and then like, oh, if I could just talk like that, right? He cut through the whole conversation, silenced the mouths of people. Oh, this is one of those statements. I don't, I don't need to answer you, you know, king, <laughs> in this matter. I don't think it's brazenness. I just think, I just think they're aware of the truth. And this is the really cool thing about remembering who you are in Christ, remembering who you are, that you've been redeemed by the blood, that you have been given relationship with God because of that, that you are, that you are born again, is that your advocate is always going to be way stronger, way more able than any person you will ever talk to. Sometimes the trouble is reminding ourselves just how great the Lord is. And how when you get into situations where you do have to kind of stand for him, how he will totally give you the strength to do it if you are willing. And that he's always working both sides. So even the person who may come against you or may, who may be trying to force you to bow the knee, pray for that person in that moment. They're probably dealing with some kind of conviction of the Holy Spirit. They don't even know how to deal with it. Think about when you were before, before you knew Christ, the things that you said and you thought about Christ before you actually knew him. Nebuchadnezzar is a person who does not know the Lord. And as we will see in these chapters, the Lord is after Nebuchadnezzar. At the same time, he's, he's after a foreign king. At the same time that he's trying to help Daniel. The Lord's working for them both. 
O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. What power. What beauty. And yet they go on and add this, which is just incredible. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I wonder if maybe they had seen some of the people who were the workers. And Nebuchadnezzar takes all the credit for having set it up himself. And he says, which you have set up. Perhaps reading into it a little bit. This tells us about the knowledge that they had about who the God of the Bible is. All-powerful? Yes. Able? Yes. But does this same God sometimes allow people to walk through incredible hardships and trials? Yes. Because although he is all-powerful, his will may not be for you to escape the trial. We don't know always what the Lord, Lord's will is as you walk through a trial. The Lord may will it for you to escape the trial. And I think most often if we're praying about trials we go through, we're like, let's go with escape. Door number one. Door number one, Lord. Escape. Come on. But they're aware of the fact that the Lord's will may be to preserve them through it. Not escape, but through. Have you, have you walked through a fire? Have you walked through a trial? Those are hard days, aren't they? When you want the thing to be over, but you know that all you can do, like all you have power to do is just do this. Just going to keep walking. I really want it to end, but I just going to keep walking. Sometimes he will desire that you walk through it. But he wants you to find out something wonderful in it. And we'll get to that as we continue reading. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that the heat, that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Please note that, that they are bound as they are thrown in. So he binds them and he casts them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Guys, that's cruelty because if you're thrown into a fire and you are, don't have clothing on, you are actually, you will be exposed to the heat, but as far as things burning, you won't catch fire first. It's your clothing that does. This mentioning of the, the turban, the trousers, 
This is them saying, you are going to catch fire all over. This is, this is extreme cruelty. Therefore, because of the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. I remember when I was reading about this story as a kid. I was not a believer, but I remember reading this story and thinking, this is insane. This is absolutely crazy. I can still picture that little kid's Bible that had the picture of the flames and the expression on the king's face and the people and these men falling into a fiery furnace. Verse 24, the story is not over. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, look, he answered, I see four men loose. Four men loose. Walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. In the Septuagint, when it says there that the king is astonished, that his attention is drawn to it, and he rose in haste, in the Septuagint, it says that the king heard the sound of singing. Now contrast that with the sound of the music. You know, like when you hear the music like at a, like at a carnival or like at a circus, and it's all about distraction, right? It's all about the pomp, the circumstance. I remember times where I've had to play um, Elgar's Pomp and Circumstance for, for high school graduation. You just, one more time, dee, da, 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 dee, da. It's the most heartless expression you could ever, just, could this go on forever? Those two hour, who invented the three hour high school graduation? That's torturous in and of itself, right? That's just like the worst idea ever. Let's all sit without food or water and stare. And of course, kids do great under the age of six in those situations. Not. Okay, I got off track there a little bit, sorry. I do have certain musical bones to pick. But contrast that, right, with the sound of singing inside of an inferno. That'll get your attention. That's different. That's a different type of music. And the thing I want to point out about this is, of course, we have to deal with this issue of the fourth man. Most likely, most commentators, at least the ones I, I like, think that this fourth man was a Christophany. If you've not heard that term before, that's fine. This is a pre-incarnate, as far as, as, far as like pre-bodily formed Jesus that we think of him. Because Jesus, we know, was there at the creation. 
We know that he was part of the Trinity from the get-go. We know that in Colossians it tells us he was, he was literally part of the creation process. That this was probably an appearance of Christ. Now what's fascinating is not just that, but who sees the fourth man? The king. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We don't know. We don't know if they saw the fourth character. We don't know if they, did they sense him? Did they see him? The only one who sees it in the text is the king. Now, I'm reading into this a little bit, but I don't know exactly how much hotter seven times hotter is, but I do know this about, interestingly about fire, is that the hotter the fire is, the clearer the flame, the more you get the blues, lighter yellows, almost white. If they hadn't made the fire that much hotter, would he have been able to see? Interesting stuff. And going back to this point of what is the Lord's will as you go through a trial? Is it the escape or is it to cause you to endure and to grow? Notice that the four men who had been bound in the fire is where they are loosed. And guys, this is a huge spiritual lesson for us all. Often the Lord will walk you and me through a trial, not to bound you or bind you, but to loosen you, to loosen me from things that we may not loose of ourselves unless we walk through it. When you're going through a trial, if, if, I, can, if I can encourage you to ask one thing of the Lord, it's this. Lord, purify me. Lord, purify me. It's so easy to get the eye focused on the king. That's the king. Lord, attend to the king. But the Lord wants a work to be done in them also. He wants them to be free. And notice, they are not only unbound, they are loose. They are walking around. What did that feel like? Read with me in the text about what happens and what they see. Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fire furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Oh, now he brings out the Most High God again. Oh, how, how convenient. <laughs> come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. Notice, he doesn't call to the four. He calls to the three. At some point, that four just out of the text, in the text, out of the text. Sometimes you'll notice Jesus walking through you with a trial. Sometimes you won't. Is he always there? He's always there. He's always, always there. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire 
had no power. The fire existed, but it had no power. The hair on their head was not singed. You ever been too close to a campfire and gotten the the eyebrows singed when your friend poured gasoline on it before you had a chance to tell him not to? Everybody has a friend like that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Think of those guys from high school. (laughs) Singed. Nor were their garments affected. Somehow the binding got burned away, but not their clothing? How fascinating is that? And the smell of fire was not on them. If, if you go to a campfire, I have campfires at my house quite often. Um, the next day, my garments always smell horribly of smoke, and I love it. I'll actually wear the garment again, because I just, I like the feeling of the campfire. I'm like, campfire in the car, let's go, hoodie. But not them, not even the smell. Imagine how much smoke and smell would have been inside a seven times hotter fiery furnace. Would have been immense. It was not on them. It did not touch them. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they, have, and they have frustrated the king's word. He, this is him saying this. They have frustrated my word, is what he's saying. And yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar is, is humbled again, is he not? Is he humbled to the full extent that he needs to be? Not yet. <laughs> Chapter 4. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I wonder how they responded to that uh, Oh, and we're going to give you some really great jobs. Another thing, like, well, last time you gave us some really good jobs, then this happened, so I'm not sure that's really, like, a safe place. Like, can you just put me on an island somewhere? Like, leave me alone, maybe? He promotes them. He saw them go through an incredible thing, but they were not affected. I mentioned before that the conspicuous absence of Daniel, and the fourth man is is not that Daniel. And I heard this beautiful story about an interpretation of this chapter to think of it as a preview of the tribulation that would be coming, the seven-year tribulation that we're told of in the book of Revelation. Nebuchadnezzar would be an example or prototype of the Antichrist, right, who would create an image for people to bow down to. The image, of course, is the same image from where Revelation chapter 13, the image of the beast. The furnace, this would be the time of tribulation for Israel, right? Because the tribulation of the nation of Israel will be going through this, as well as a number of uh, Gentiles, of course. The three men are the, are the example of Israel, those who have to go through this time of tribulation. 
and those who perish, those who were uh, those who were who were lost in the fiery furnace, those would be those who were in league with the Antichrist, who, although they thought it would be good to join with this power, themselves got killed and came to their own demise by following the Antichrist. But what about Daniel? Well, who is absent during the tribulation? The church. That Daniel's absence in this chapter foretells the fact that the church, having been raptured before the tribulation begins, would thus be the, the explanation of why Daniel was absent within this fiery trial. An interesting thing to chew on. Now, let's move on to chapter four. Chapter four is unique in the book of Daniel because it is actually the words of Nebuchadnezzar himself. This is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony that we read of in chapter four. Let's jump right in. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. He's, he's writing now. He's writing his testimony. He's telling you his story. He's writing to all the people, and he tells them, peace be multiplied to you. Now that's interesting never heard anything like that. We, we've seen him come close to these points of, of humility, but here he's obviously, with his expression, I mean, this is almost like the beginning of a letter from, from the Apostle Paul, that it sounds like to me as I, as I read through. I'm like, this, this is the New Testament? Verse two, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Wait, 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 wait. worked for me? What happened? Well, now we're about to find out. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now we've seen Nebuchadnezzar talk a good talk about the Lord in previous chapters, including what we just saw there in chapter three. We saw it again in chapter two. But at some point, something has to change where this is a, a heart issue. He's not just, a, he has done what I would call a verbal, I mean, excuse me, mental assent. He's, he's aware of a God or a power that is greater than him. But has he submitted himself to that? Until this point, the answer is no. And now we hear the story, verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts of, on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. This should ring a bell, of course, with chapter two. This is a different situation, though, of course. Therefore, I issued, oh, I just said that, sorry, verse seven. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream. Now remember, in chapter two, when he had this dream, he was really stubborn, wasn't he? He was like, you guys come in and help me. And they're like, okay, tell us the dream. We'll tell you the interpretation. Oh, you jumped about a line. Well, that means, you know, you're gonna have a really hard year or whatever it is. And he's like, no, 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 no. You tell me the dream. And they're all like, <laughs> uh, the psychic hotline doesn't quite work that way. Um, so here he kind of bypasses that and he tells them, he tells them uh, what the dream is. But it says there in the second half of verse seven, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Now notice those words, did not. It doesn't say could not. 
they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. This is, he actually named him after the, the Babylonian God, named, another Babylonian God named, named Bel. In fact, Belteshazzar, let's see, Belteshazzar, what does this mean? Meshach, Abednego, where is this? Abednego, Shadrach. I think I forgot to write it, actually. Never mind. Moving on. Um, his name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. Again, this is Nebuchadnezzar writing. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. And again, this is like, this is the, this is the term that we think also relates to what we find about the, the magi in, in Luke chapter two, right? That he is the chief of the magi at this point. Um, Belteshazzar, sorry. Chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. And these are the visions of my head while on the bed. I was looking and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens. It could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Sounds like a pretty marvelous tree, right? The pretty majestic, amazing tree. All this stuff is happening because of it. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher a holy one coming down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said thus. We're not exactly sure what he means by a watcher. In in my opinion, this is is him observing an angel or an angelic being. Um, And there are some who would argue within this text that it is a watcher and a holy one. We're not sure exactly if a holy one is is a kind of an adjective that describes the watcher. I myself think it's just basically an angelic being that he's dealing with. Anyhow, this being cried aloud in verse 14 and said thus, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. Isn't that interesting, you ever come across a stump? But a stump here that was bound with metal. If you saw a stump that was bound with metal as though it was keeping it from growing or stopping it in its tracks, you would think a different thing about this stump than just something had been cut down. Something more is to happen or occur with this stump. In the tender grass of the field, this is where this, this stump would be. And let it be wet with dew of heaven. And notice this change in verse 15. Everything up to this point has been about the tree and is referred to by pronoun with the, with the pronoun it. But at the, at the, at the middle point of, of verse 15, it then changes. And let him, a new pronoun, an interpretation pronoun, and let him graze with the beasts. on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast 
and let seven times, which translates to seven years, pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know, and this is the great thing that they want to communicate, the great thing that every human being needs to know, that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. He gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar noticed this little detail that when he says, and he sets over the kingdoms the lowest of men. I want to bring your attention to that one sentence though. The most high rules in the kingdom of men. When you're going throughout your your daily life, when you watch the news, do you come to such a conclusion as well? Or do you hold to such a sentence? What does he want them to know? That, guys read it to me, that what? The most high rules in the kingdom of men. I think this is a good word for us to put in our pockets and take with us as we live on this earth. Because it's easy to forget this or rather to forget how powerful and how true it is. It's easy to look at the kingdom of men and think, These, this, this, this kingdom is winning. This kingdom is ruling. This kingdom is falling. He wants us to know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. This dream, verse 18, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen And now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my my Lord, and and notice his response. Think about the things Daniel's been through, the things he's seen his friends go through. It'd be very easy for Daniel to maybe understand this dream, which you've probably interpreted already before you've read its interpretation, is about the falling of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. But notice Daniel's response. It's not one of glee, It's one of sorrow. My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. In this moment, he shows an incredible amount of compassion and love for King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to do. That's hard for me to be compassionate when I've seen someone or I've seen a king do some incredibly dastardly things. It's hard to regain that. It's hard to have that. And in fact, I would say this, the only way for you to love your enemies 
is by a work of the Holy Spirit. The only way for you to actually rise up out of the pit or the ashes of the things that you've gone through or the hurts and stuff is a move of God. And that's exactly what's happening here. And, and Nebuchadnezzar gets to experience this. There's nothing short of an incredible compassion. The tree, verse 20, which that, that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. You can just imagine, he's probably just waiting here before these next words come. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. And I wonder if this explains a little bit more about the whole situation, about the interpretation. Because it's not really that difficult of a dream, is it? This, this powerful thing gets chopped down. Hmm, like who... <laughs> Who could that possibly be? You know, like maybe it's about, yeah, it's about, and I think, I think the astrologers and the ones, because they were told the dream, I think they were probably like, uh, are you going to tell them or, do you, okay, well, because I, I don't want to tell them. Like, it, it says they did not tell him. It says also that they were not able to, but it's like, were they not able to because of courage? This is not a difficult, I mean, the other dream that he interpreted and knew the dream of was much more complicated, convoluted, and all this kind of stuff compared to this one. Now, he's having to break news that he knows that he's not going to like. Verse 23, and, and inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times or seven years pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you until you know what? This. Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. What a sentence to share with an unbeliever. Oh, why are you going through this? Oh, why are these things happening? Perhaps it's until you Understand this, that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. I pray you would have opportunity to share that with people. It's an incredibly strong and yet also incredibly beautiful idea. Do you remember when you learned that the most high rules in the kingdom of men? Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember how you perhaps fought against that knowledge or, or fought against that idea of, of being saved? 
We're being forgiven. And you realize that your entire life was already written almost as a script. And that you had been brought to a moment that had been planned since eternity past. All so that you could know this one thing that would change your entire life and trajectory that the Most High rules in your kingdom. The kingdom of Bob and Linda. The kingdom of you. Desiree's kingdom and Aaron's kingdom. Jack's kingdom. The Most High God rules in your kingdom. Whatever that is. Sorry to point you out. It's for everyone. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Now, wait a second. The king didn't ask for advice. Have you ever offered advice that you weren't asked to offer? Now, I know you weren't asking for advice, you know, but uh, guys, very often in these situations where this idea of the most high rules, this advice is the next thing that really has to be offered It's not just enough that people would know that there is a God, but it's then the relationship of themselves to him that Daniel gets out. And he says, I let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. This is the classic biblical teaching on repentance. Hey, hey, why don't you stop doing all this stuff that you do that's bad? Why don't you turn away from that? You want to know that the most high rules, then you have to unrule. You have to take your hand off those things. You have to turn around. The proverbial 180 has to happen. I pray you would have opportunity to share this as well. This advice to people at the right time. Notice Daniel did not tell Nebuchadnezzar this at any point before. How long had he been with him? How long had Nebuchadnezzar observed his life? He waited for this this moment of the turning of the tide, of the humiliation in a positive way of the king to then say, hey, why don't you stop sinning? Why don't you stop doing these terrible things? He could have brought up all kinds of stuff, right? He said, do you, do you, don't you know what you did to my friends? You tried to murder them. No. He says, look, your sins, your iniquities, the poor, why don't you do what is good? Why don't you turn away from what is bad? This is all part of knowing that the most high rules in the kingdom of men because that is the symbol of his rulership, is it not? That the direction of man towards sin is reversed. And he says, to finish it, perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember, who's writing this? King Nebuchadnezzar's writing this. He's telling his testimony. This is his version of how things went down. And it says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. 
walking about. I wonder if as he was walking about, he was thinking about the walking about of the three men in the furnace. Nah, I don't think so. I, I think he was doing something else. We'll, we'll read it here. The king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? <clears throat> you can almost like hear the cringe of those, the eyes and the me's, you know, the terrible trinity, me, myself, and I, you know. He's back at it again. The same thing he did at the beginning of chapter three, he took that image and he's like, oh, it's about the kingdoms and the fact that mine will end. And no, no, it's about, it's about me. And he does the same thing. And don't we all do the same thing? We make our lives and the things that happen to us about us more. <laughs> oh man, it's so, isn't it humiliating to be human? I like to, to realize the things that you think sometimes and the ways that you operate. And you're like, I really have a problem. <laughs> I really have a terrible problem of myself. Notice how long the Lord gave him to process the words of Daniel, these words of, of repenting. You know, it could have happened the next day, but we're told that it took how long until he arrived at this? He gave him an entire year. One year to do what? To repent. When somebody does something wrong against you, do you give them a year? Hey, I'm going to give my wife a year to apologize for that. <laughs> or your kids. Yeah, you know what? I'll give them a year. We'll see if they... Apologize for breaking that window, breaking my toe, whatever it is. That's incredibly gracious. And this whole time, what's happening inside of his mind? What's spinning up there? Is it to go after the words of Daniel or is it just to reject them? Is it to go after them, to reject them? Remember when you first heard the gospel, you didn't know what to do. None of you, I, I, would, I would guess, none of you got saved the first time you heard the gospel. He has to usually roll around in there. <laughs> has to get down into the, the gizzards. I don't know what that is. I'm just talking. It's rolling around in there, and at some point he, this is him rejecting that. He said, this, this is my city. I, I built this. We built this city. Don't, don't. On rock and roll, that's a, that's a really, honestly, a, a kind of a silly thing to put at the end of that sentence. Um, but that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. I, I built this. It's my place. It's my power. It's my majesty. And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. Has that ever happened to you? You hear that quick conviction of the Holy Spirit? He just goes, Bam! happened to me. I remember this one time I was in a, I was in a car ride with my wife and I was harping on something pretty bad and complaining. And, and I think I'm totally right in the complaint, justified. I obviously was not. 
And I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking, and notice that she's not. But I keep talking. That's a problem. And she looks at me, as I still remember where I was. I was on this curve of this interstate on the high five in Dallas. And she goes, and she looks at me, and she goes, I thought you were a Christian. Oh, oh, floored me. And then the Holy Spirit was all over me. I was just, I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. Those things coming out of my own mouth. Ah, oh, man. Those complaints, those justifications that I had for me. And she's just like, she just totally called me on the carpet, man. And I just, finishing the curve, not knowing what to say. Probably a good thing not to speak. But that's what it's like, isn't it? We get convicted. We're shown things about ourselves. We're shown things about our speech and our thoughts. Anyhow, the kingdom, he says, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, verse 32, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know that, let's all read it together, the most high rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. And that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. This is way beyond no shave November, guys. This is just beefing out on the body hair and the growing out of the nails and stuff. Gross. Gross. Now, there's something really interesting about this before we end the chapter. Uh, there is actually a, a medical um, uh, description of when people think that they are an animal. It's called boanothropy. And it's people who get so confused mentally that they lose track of who they are and they begin to think of themselves as something that they are not. More than likely, this is the mental state that Nebuchadnezzar was in. Now, there is no evidence in Babylonian history that talks and reveals about this situation happening. There's nothing that corroborates it, but that actually shouldn't surprise you because ancient kings very rarely wrote down the stuff that they did that was wrong or that would be embarrassing. I mean, like, honestly, this is one of the things that makes the Bible historically such a unique book is the hero's are shown with all of their blemishes. Almost no other ancient book has that kind of truthfulness at all. But here's an interesting thing. In the annals of Babylonian history, there is conspicuously absent a seven-year period in which there are no royal decrees given by Nebuchadnezzar. And interestingly enough, a Greek historian whose name is Epidinus wrote in 268 BC that Nebuchadnezzar was possessed by some god and had immediately disappeared for a time. 
So there is some interesting, really uh, kind of extra biblical sources that refer to this, this issue. Now, what happens to you and me if we deny the Lord, if we walk away from the Lord? What happens to your character? I, I, I doubt that you grow your nails out that long or that you're like, I'm just not going to shave for years. But <laughs> there's kind of a nail-growing, hair, you know, oxen-like, animalistic thing that happens to human beings inside, is there not? I remember once explaining to a friend of mine, this was maybe a couple of years after I received Christ. I was 21 when I got saved. I wanted nothing to do with the Lord before that. I was an atheist, practically speaking. And I remember talking to this friend about having recently begun to read the Bible and how it was, it was, it was changing me and all this kind of stuff. And I was going to this church. Actually, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. This was not actually years after. This was like within the first six months. And I, some changes had begun happening within me. Some pretty drastic ones, in fact. And I remember I was going to this Bible study at a church and... One morning before I went to church, I decided that I wanted to read the word before I went. Now, before that, I hadn't done that. And I showed up at church, and this girl sitting next to me said, like, what is wrong with you today? And I was like, what? She's like, you're different. And I was like, I am? And she's like, yeah, something's different about you. And that's when the Lord like, showed me the power of his word to cleanse my ways. Something about my speech, something about, I don't even know what it was, but somebody else saw it, and that's when I first began to realize the power of the word in me to clean me and cleanse me in ways that I can't, I can't cleanse myself, guys. Like, it really comes down to that. You can't cleanse yourself. You can't make yourself holy. You're not gonna make yourself more likable. You're not gonna make yourself more friendly by willing it or saying, I'm not gonna do that sin in or this. It's, it's the filtration process of God's word pouring over you, washing you clean, doing things that you can't even do on your own that changes us. It makes us less like the animal within, the sinful creature that is going to come out unless we are defeated by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the word. We are so much more like this than we think and we can become this way and revert back to our fleshly ways if we are not constantly under the cleansing flow, the cleansing flow of the word and the power therein. And at the end of the time, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. Notice that he lifted his eyes and then the understanding came back. He was still somehow in that animalistic state able to address someone, communicate, understand. He, it's not like he had no understanding. And when he decided to humble himself, this is where his understanding returned. Is there not a lesson for us constantly with that idea? I lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. Guys, if you're going through something, lift your eyes to heaven. 
that your understanding may be given clarity, power, wisdom? How often do we need to just do this? Just this looking up is that. Looking up is saying this in our hearts. Most high rules in the kingdom, in this kingdom, in me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now before Nebuchadnezzar has said, blessed be, he has said the most high God, he has given all kinds of verbal, mental assent to this power, but he has never worshiped this king. You want to know if someone is a believer? You want to know if you're a believer? Do you worship him? It's quite simple. Do you worship him? And he finishes, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, again, in his own hand, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he's able to put down. Nebuchadnezzar finally learned the root issue of all his sin, of all his grievance, was the issue of pride, and it's the same for us. Pride is the elevating of yourself above others and above the Lord. And he says he's able to put down those who walk in pride. He worships, he speaks to this Lord. Nebuchadnezzar is a changed person. And notice what the Lord does. Again, I, I noted at the beginning of the study this interesting thing that Nebuchadnezzar gave no credence to any, any artisan that was part of the building of that statue in contrast to what we see in the book of Exodus. Does the Lord say, oh, well, now that I've got you, you're going to go live on you know, the island of Patmos, for example? I mean, what does the Lord do? You're telling me the Old Testament doesn't have grace in it? This is extremely gracious. He gives him back his kingdom. And guys, that is the Lord. When we repent, we turn around, we, we think, oh, we're going to get in trouble because we, 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 we you know, repented of that sin or we, you know, we're going to be put lower or we're going to be punished. All those things, those fear things, that's not how the Lord works. He comes because he wants to restore us. He wants to bless us. He wants to help us. The Lord of grace, Old Testament, New Testament, 
It's the same Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these beautiful words, this story, this personal testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, Lord. And I pray tonight that you would, Lord, help us to remember our own testimony, to remember the things that you've delivered us from, that those times of, of pride or arrogance or me, myself, and I, all those things that bound and shackled us and remember that we have been set free from those things. And Lord, if there are any that are walking through, through fires and trials right now, Lord, would you just be close to them? Would you strengthen them in this room? Would you pour out your mercy upon them? Would you restore them as they turn to you? Would you, would you walk close to them? Would, they, would you help them to, to acknowledge you and to say, I know you're going to be with me. Father, we thank you for your love, your mercy, and for your grace. It is by that that we stand. In Jesus' name, amen.